Welcome to Challenging Climate, a podcast where we discuss the science, technology, and politics of climate change. I'm Jesse Reynolds, an environmental policy expert. I'm Pete Irvin, climate scientist. Each episode, we bring on a guest with a unique perspective and deep expertise on climate change and put challenging questions to them. In this episode, we spoke with Mark Maslin, Professor of Earth System Science at University College London. And Mark is particularly interesting because he is, as the title implies, at the core, a geologist understanding the Earth, greats anthropology, and develops an understanding of how human evolution and the origin of human culture relates to changes in Earth systems and drawing from that the importance of climate for human development. Yeah, it was great. We um, discussed the evolution of humanity and the critical role that changes in the environment and changes in climate had in that key points in that evolution, um, driving us towards bigger brains and more social cooperation. And then in turn, once we got to grips with our intelligence and our tools, how we then went on to transform the planet. And this is another area where Mark has done a lot of work is on the Anthropocene, the age of man, the age at which our geological impacts are large enough to rival those of conventional geology, the volcanoes and asteroids of the past. It was great speaking to him about that. We ended with a discussion of climate change, another area he, he works on a lot and, and communicates on a lot, discussing some of the changing challenges of communicating on climate change, talking about what gives him hope, what gives him worry, and what can we do better. And situating it in a very political context, it's clear that he sees his work, both his activity and the object of his work, as being political. And so that shapes the conversation, particularly as it went on. Yeah, it was great having Mark on. Really interesting conversation. Hope you all enjoy. We are joined today by Mark Maslin. He is Professor of Earth System Science at University College London and a Society Wolfson Research Merit Scholar. Mark is a leading scientist with particular expertise in past global and regional climatic change and its links to human evolution. Mark has made considerable effort to communicate his results to the public, having written dozens of popular science articles and several books among which are Climate Change, A Very Short Introduction, now in its fourth edition, How to Save Our Planet, The Facts, The Human Planet, How We Created the Anthropocene with Simon Lewis, and The Cradle of Humanity, How the Changing Landscape of Africa Made Us So Smart. And so, Mark, welcome to Challenging Climate. Well, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. So let's begin with a word about you. How did you end up as a professor of anthropology with a focus on climate change? I think it was a trajectory that came from my PhD work. So I was a PhD student of Sir Professor Nick Shackleton, and we were looking at how the last ice age evolved and changes within that ice age. And that got me into all the different mechanisms that drive climate change. So how the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was changing, how albedo and all of those feedbacks put together. And it was through that work that I started to realize that paleoclimates gives us a real insight into climate change, both in the past, the present and the future. And that's where my interest lies. And so I'm all about the mechanisms and the feedbacks 
And this is where about 15 years ago, a dear, dear friend of mine started a project in East Africa, wanting me to be part of that team. And we started working in Kenya doing fieldwork. And that's how one of branch of my science, the stuff on paleoanthropology, came about. And we started to challenge some of the theories of early human evolution. Well, speaking of early human evolution, do you want to give us a little bit of a background there? Our nearest living relatives are the chimps and bonobos. What distinguishes us from them and, and how did we transition to where we are now? So there are some real key stages in human evolution, which relate straight back to climate change. So the first thing is 65 million years ago, the meteorite hits sort of like Mexico, wiped out the non-avian dinosaurs, and therefore cleared the way for mammals to actually start to radiate and to evolve, which was great. And that's when we got primates. And without primates, no humans. But actually, nothing really happened for about 10 million years, apart from having primates. And it was the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum at about 55 million years ago, a peak of super warming that occurred that actually started the sociality. It started that primates then became incredibly social creatures and started living in large groups. And that was essential because that's what we are. We are ultra-social creatures. And it wasn't until about 12 to 10 million years ago that changes in East Africa started to push bipedalism. So what's interesting is if you happen to be an ape or a primate, you have two options to be able to adapt to your environment. So chimpanzees, we know, have adapted to a more tree-like environment. They're very good in forests, whereas some more open uh, land and being able to move between trees and between resources meant that we needed to use a different approach, which is bipedalism. So it's a very efficient way of a primate to move from place to place. And so that comes out critically about, I would say, about 7 million years ago, we definitely have bipedal primates. We then think they are then hominins. And so they're on the plains and the forests of Africa. And then the next key one is much later, about 2 million years ago, when we have brain expansion. So something takes these incredibly successful hominins, like Ostopithecus apianus, spread out over the whole continent, and something then kickstarts the brain expansion. And Homo erectus, brain expands by about 80% compared with previous hominins, and that trajectory carries on. Homo habilis expands brain again about a million years ago, and then again with Homo sapien, we have another brain expansion and we then have that dispersal throughout the world. So there are key moments that we have evolved in different ways, which has actually ended up with this ultra-social creature, humans, which then dominate the planet. And for me, what was interesting and what I study is looking at each one of those steps and looking at how that change has occurred. Even going further, I then look at the history of humanity to look at the different steps that have changed society markedly and why we've ended up where we are, basically having a huge environmental impact on planet Earth. So much of the key in human evolution occurred in East Africa. What's particular about East Africa that led to some of these changes? 
Well, I think the thing about East Africa is everything changes. And I know that sounds really radical, but if you go back, say, 10 million years, East Africa looks a little bit like the Amazon, okay? It's relatively flat. It's got tropical or seasonal tropical rainforest. It is river dominated. And then quirk of geology, there's a hot spot that comes up from the mantle, starts to rise up, and that causes doming. So you have this doming of Ethiopia and just like when you're making a beautiful apple pie, of course, the actual crust rises up because, of course, all the apple sauce is uh, heating up and boiling. And of course, I'm a rubbish cook. So if you leave it in too long, it suddenly splits. And that's what you get. You get this rift valley. So you get a mountain range on either side up to four kilometers high, and then you get a hanging valley. Calling it a valley is actually wrong because it's a thousand meters above sea level. And so what you're changing is you change from a riverine dominated system to a lake dominated system, which makes it much more sensitive to changes in rainfall. But you're also fragmenting the vegetation. Now, the old argument was that you're going from sort of like forest to savanna, Darwin's idea, you know, man striding across the grassy plains, etc. But actually, that's not what mountains do. Mountains fragment. So if you go to Ethiopia now, you can go from cloud rainforest all the way down to arid desert within about 50 kilometers. And so that's what it does. It stresses all the animals living and plants living in the area because you have changing of environment. And so therefore, if you're able to move and you're able to move large distances, you can move from different food sources. And this is one of the reasons we think that bipedalism actually occurred. But it's also those lakes. Those lakes become very sensitive. And we know from the geological records that changes in the orbit of the Earth, these wobbles, occasionally cause the monsoonal system in East Africa to intensify. And therefore, suddenly the whole of the Rift Valley fills up with lakes. And then suddenly they disappear and it becomes hyper arid. And then it fills up again. And you have these pulses of extreme climate. And that's exactly when you find all these new species suddenly appearing on the landscape competing with each other. And that's right, because it wasn't just a, a single human ancestor, a single strand between the bonobos and here, or the chimpanzees and here. There was quite a few competitors to Homo sapiens or on the way. How did they coexist? Oh, well, the great thing is that forget the linear tree of evolution. The human evolutionary uh, sort of tree is a bush. There are lots and lots of species that suddenly appear. And the key thing is to remember that the first split is before real bipedalism, and that's the split between chimpanzees and bonobos and hominins. Okay, So they went on different pathways. And so that even though they're our closest living relatives, they're actually very far back in our genetic coding, about five to six million years. You then have periods of lots of species appearing. So for example, about two million years ago, we think there could be up to six species. Now, problem here is that with any science, paleoanthropology being no different, there is some disagreements. So there are people that want to lump species together, and there's people that are splitters and want actually lots of species. So let's be conserved and say there's six species. So there seems to be six species that occur at about two million years ago. Some of them are adapted with incredibly heavy jaws, smaller skulls, so they can eat everything. We then have Homo erectus, which is much smarter than previous hominins, and therefore can think its way out. And what's interesting is over about a 200,000-year period of these lakes coming and going, only one species seems to emerge, Homo erectus. So there seems to be evolution creates lots of species. Then there seems to be competition. 
And then however you'd like to think about it, that competition leads to one or two species surviving and moving on to the next crisis, maybe about a million years later. So I wonder something about the, the mechanisms behind human evolution, because I guess Darwin's original imagination was the survival of the fittest, but then there's also sexual selection. And I guess a third force, a bit darker in human evolution, there seems to be quite a bit of, I mean, how much genocide and, and organized violence, how big a role did that play in human evolution? Because we see it in our chimpanzee relatives. Did that play a big role or how did these other factors play in, in the development of intelligence in hominins? So I think that we need to look at different steps and different stages, because I think the role of environment, how environment then affects sexual selection, and how you then have competition and literally removal or genocide of a species, I think really plays out differently at different time periods. I think stepping back, the big problem that we have now is there are lots of different theories of evolution. So whether it's allopatric speciation, i.e. when species are isolated and therefore they can evolve in different ways, whether it is sort of like intense competition, the red queen hypothesis, so that species then compete, whether it is rapid climate change, which then stresses species so new traits appear. The biggest problem is that as we've got better and better resolution with the geological records, it seems that all of them could play a role. Okay, so there doesn't seem to be one beautiful, simple theory of evolution that could play a role in human evolution. So if you think about it, what we have is we have these very dry conditions, and these will last about 8,000 years, and then suddenly lakes appear. And there's a threshold mechanism, because as soon as you wet the landscape with enough water, you change the evaporation precipitation, so you change the amount of moisture in the atmosphere, you then have lots of trees and vegetation, which suddenly allows more moisture. Hey, presto, you have a lake. You know, and in geological terms, they literally appear overnight. And then you have this period of maybe up to 8,000 years where you have these incredible high energy environments, lots and lots of water, fresh water, lots of food, etc. And then you have a 2,000 year period where the actual sort of lake basically dries up, what comes back, dries up, comes up, very, very stressful. And then you go back to those dry conditions. And I think we have to think about when we see these species. What we're seeing is just a final bit or an intermediate stage. What we're not seeing is the accumulation of traits. So if you take, say, something like Homo erectus, okay, which is really the start of the Homo genus, okay, most importantly, so far, smarter. But that brain expansion means that we've had to have hip adaptations to allow us to give birth to a much larger head. We also know that the shoulder blades are adapted, so Homo erectus could throw things. And colleagues have shown that there's something like 50 to 100 little changes that allows us to be long-distance runner. Okay, so Homo erectus is one of the first long-distance runner. One of the other really interesting things is, of course, if you look at the teeth and growth lines, Homo erectus is the first hominid to have a growth plateau. So what people understand but don't really perceive is that when humans grow, they grow linearly up to about the age of eight or nine, and then they stop growing. And then there's this growth plateau, which extends for, say, four or five years. And suddenly there's this puberty where suddenly everybody shoots up and suddenly uh, boys go from being shorter than girls to being six foot and all gangly. And then you have a few more years until adulthood. That extended childhood, which we think is to allow children to learn how to be social, how to interact, how to actually 
train their brain first occurs with Homo erectus. So we have all these traits, but they don't have to be caused by the same evolutionary mechanism. I think that's really important. And I think that people underestimate A, the stress of environmental change that occurred in East Africa, but I also think that they sometimes neglect the sexual uh, element. Because the interesting thing is, why would you want smartness? What's important about that? Well, firstly, if you happen to be male, you can control groups. You can then organize groups. We can go hunting mammoth, you know, and things like that as a team. And if you happen to be the alpha male, then you're able to control that group, influence people, share out food, but also therefore, you know that you're always going to get the best food. So your mates who want to actually mate with you know, hang on, this is a person that I know will always have the best share of food, also has sort of like the most security, you know, that's the great person. On the female side, I think it's really important because what we forget is that giving birth is really difficult for humans. Having children is really difficult because they take a long time. You look, have to look after them for 14 years. So again, maternal care, the idea that you can have sort of like non-relatives, females who are going to actually help you as a team to raise the children and look after them. And so therefore, you can have multiple roles. So you can actually be a hunter-gatherer. You can be a gatherer as well as looking after your children becomes really important. So being able to be sociable and controlled groups as a female becomes really important as well. So suddenly you have these incredible traits, which basically you're selecting for to be really smart, to be ultra social, to be able to control large groups. And one of the things I say to students is think about some incredibly charismatic people. We have comedians who basically can stand on stage, nothing else, just their voice and some stories, entertain 70,000 people in a stadium and get them to the point if they said, right, let's all march out and let's get basically burn parliament, probably everybody go, yes, we'll do it. Okay. So it's really interesting that that power to be able to influence others is what makes us really smart. Yeah. And Homo sapiens or humans now are the ones who made it. There were a few others, Neanderthals, Denisovans. What was it that finally gave Homo sapiens or Homo sapiens sapiens, gave them the final edge. Oh, so this is the million dollar question. So it's like, why is this version of Homo sapiens so successful? So the first thing to remember is those other species are still in us. So again, if you happen to be from Western Europe, you have Western Neanderthal DNA in you. If you happen to be sort of like from Asia, you have Eastern Neanderthals in you. So there are still bits and pieces of those species. So it wasn't clear cut. These are two species we never interbred. No, we were interbreeding. And that's that bush thing. I think the key thing is Homo sapien 2.0. And you called them Homo sapiens sapiens, however you want to refer to them. So about 200,000 years ago, Homo sapien basically evolves in East Africa and spreads out, but seems to coexist with Homo erectus in East Africa, Neanderthals in Europe and in sort of Asia, and just seems to be a slightly better version of Homo erectus. Something happens about 70 to 60,000 years ago, again in East Africa, and you get Homo sapien 2.0. Now, there's some speculation. What's really interesting about those new hominins is that they have shorter faces, so their faces are less pronounced. Their finger uh, bones have less differences between their two index fingers, all of which points to less testosterone. 
And so what seems to happen, and this has been suggested by Richard Ragham, is that we underwent self-domestication, a bit like the bonobos compared with chimpanzees. So chimpanzees cannot go a day without punching somebody, just how they are. Bonobos are incredibly passive. Now, the difference between chimpanzees and bonobos is the Congo River. On the chimpanzee side are gorillas. On the bonobos, nothing. So again, there is a sort of environmental and competition element there. So what it looks like is that humans went under a sort of self-domestication. And what that means is interactive violence, so male-on-male violence, decreased markedly. It means that you can work better in teams. It means that you can accept creatives. You can expect people to be specialized and therefore you work much better. Don't get me wrong. Humans are still incredibly violent when they are in a tribe. But within the tribe, very little would have occurred. This is the actual new species that leaves Africa. And you can see that it's incredibly successful. Wherever it goes, suddenly any hominins are outcompeted or murdered. We're not sure what. We also have this sweeping in and suddenly all the megafauna disappears. So Homo sapiens has been in Asia and in the north for a long period of time. Homo sapiens 2.0 comes in and guess what? The mammoth all die out. And I love the fact that some of my colleagues go, well, I still think it's climate. It's like, no, the mammoth survived all the previous interglacials. The one interglacial they didn't survive was the one where Homo sapiens came out and killed them. And you see this time and time again. As soon as we arrive at a new area, megafauna disappear. And it's interesting because this actually caused the crisis, which is once you've run out of very large animals to eat and feed, what do you do? And that crisis was critical to basically produce domestication of animals and domestication of crops as an essential way of actually feeding And so therefore, you have this agricultural revolution that occurs at the end of the last ice age, partly because you've run out of megafauna, but partly because conditions are increasing, CO2s actually increasing, therefore the crops or wild food is basically becoming more productive. And then there is a move to actually domesticate it. So again, really interesting how you can link all those together in a pathway towards what we are. And the critical thing is that cumulative culture takes off with Homo sapiens 2.0. What's interesting is we don't all have to be mega smart. We don't all have to invent the mobile phone. We just need one genius. And we go, oh, we're going to learn that. And that's the real difference. I know people always argue, hey, look how smart all these animals are. Yes, but they don't have the ability to be intuitive and actually understand the other person. The only way you can teach is by understanding what the person is thinking and how they're thinking, and therefore you can teach. Chimpanzees will basically show baby chimpanzee or young chimpanzee how to dip for termites. They will get it wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong. And finally, just by trial and error, they'll go, oh, that's how you do it. Whereas us, we'll literally go, no, don't be stupid. Put it in the other way. Do this. Twist around. Pull it out. Hey, presto, it works. Okay. So therefore, being able to understand the other person and being able to teach, incredibly powerful because it means that anything that we build in society, we can spread like wildfire through the whole population. So a moment ago, you mentioned that as humans became more intelligent, they were social, better able to cooperate. It was they hunted megafauna. They increasingly caused megafaunal extinctions. And of course, a topic of particular interest on this podcast is humans' impact on the environment. And this brings me to the question, what is the 
Anthropocene, and how does one, before we go further, correctly pronounce it? <laughs> oh, I think that well, uh, depends on which side of the pond you are, I think. So I say Anthropocene, but that's just because I'm a Brit. So I'm not convinced there is any correct. Uh, otherwise, we'll just build this whole culture wars in. So the Anthropocene, I think, is probably one of the most important concepts that's come out of geology. The reason being is because for the last 30 years, the whole debate about the environment has been dominated by climate change. However, we are all very aware that we have been chopping down the rainforest, changing all the biodiversity. We have been polluting our rivers, our oceans. We even have microplastics in our own blood. You know, So we have this impact that is way beyond just climate change. And I understand the rhetoric. I'm a climate change expert myself. I understand why the rhetoric has been focused on that. But the Anthropocene says, look, humans have become the new geological superpower. We are having the same impact as plate tectonics, or meteorite impact on the whole planet. Therefore, we should step back and acknowledge that and say we are now in a new geological time period, the Anthropocene Epoch. And that has basically started a debate about, is our impact large enough? And I think most scientists are now said, looking at all the facts, going, wow, we didn't realize how much impact we really do have. Just to give you some scary facts. Half the nitrogen fixed from the atmosphere is fixed by humans through the Harbour-Bosch process to basically produce fertiliser to feed the 7.9 billion of us. The last time the nitrogen cycle was that disrupted was two and a half billion years ago. If you look at the land, 25% of the land, and that includes Antarctica in the calculation, is used directly by humans for settlements, for agriculture or resources. We have increased the extinction rate by maybe 100, maybe 1,000 fold, depending on how you calculate it, over the last 100 to 200 years. And I have to say, the one fact that really hammers it home to any audience, if you take the weight of land mammals, okay, 30% of it is us. I mean, there are 7.9 billion of us, and we're all mammals, okay, so that's a huge weight. But the other scary thing is 67% of that weight is our livestock and our pets. So that means just 3% of land mammals are the beautiful creatures that David Attenborough goes out filming so we can sit on the sofa on a Sunday night, go, oh, isn't nature beautiful? It's like 3%. When I tell people that, they just sit down and they go, oh, we really are that geological superpower. And the interesting thing is that by defining Anthropocene, we basically hold our hands up and go, yes, we can have that impact. But I think what's really important for people to realize is unlike plate tectonics and a meteorite impact, which has impact in one direction. We have the ability to change that impact. If we want to reforest the whole of North America, we can. If we want to actually stop producing plastics and actually clean up all our rivers, we could. And so therefore, I think it's that power, which is both positive and negative, that we have to represent and actually acknowledge And I think by encapsulating the Anthropocene idea, we can then say, look, we have this huge impact, but do we actually want to have that going forward? So a key concept of the Anthropocene is that humans' impact on nature would be visible in the uh, stratigraphy and the layers of sediment that are accumulating and will become the rocks of millions of years from now. And some post-human aliens may visit the planet and say, oh, look, here's a discontinuity, here's a change. What are the leading candidates for 
the beginning of the Anthropocene. So the leading candidates, if you happen to be an open-minded scientist, and I'll come back to the lack of open-mindedness of the Anthropocene Working Group. So if we have a look at, say, Bill Rudderman, Bill Rudderman saw that if you look at the Holocene, which we're in now, and look at the greenhouse gases, like most interglacials, they decrease from their peak at the end of the last ice age, and then suddenly they turn upwards. So about 6,000 years ago, CO2 starts to rise, which is different from every other interglacial. About 5,000 years ago, I cause methane rises. Now, that's because of deforestation for the CO2. Methane is because of the spread of livestock and wet rice agriculture taking off in Southeast Asia. Now, the interesting thing, it's not a huge change, but it changes the trajectory of the greenhouse gases which means we miss that critical point of going into the next ice age, which would occur somewhere now to about a thousand years in the future. So therefore, we've stopped that. So maybe that could be a good starting point. We then, so Simon Lewis and I, then when we did our review paper for Nature in 2015, pointed out that actually one of the biggest changes is the mixing of species across all continents. And this kicks off with the 16th century expansion of Europe. So we then started to expand, explore, and colonize. And with that, we basically sort of like started to move plants and animals all around the world. So after first contact with the Americas, with Christopher Columbus, we know that something like 56 million people died because they had been isolated from the old world for about 13,000 years. So those diseases that came across, typhus, measles, and then when the ships got quicker, smallpox, meant that the population was decimated. And so we lost about 10% of the world's population due to those diseases. And we also then reduced the population of the Americas down to a very small amount. I would say that's indicative of the changes. Because if you think about it, black rats are everywhere, cows are everywhere, horses are everywhere, all the things like cassava, maize in Africa, they came from South America. So we have mixed all the plants. It's almost like we have created an artificial supercontinent and mixed everything up and homogenized all of the actual biota. It's really interesting that biologists say that most areas in the world are becoming more diverse but the world in total is becoming less diverse because we're sharing. And I'll give you one example of how difficult it would be to ever change this. Earthworms. I know, what an exciting subject. Hey, look, Darwin studied them. I don't see why we should. So North America, you have European earthworms dominating. The reason being is European earthworms have a little trick. They'll go into the soil, they'll go up into the leaf litter, they'll grab some of the leaf litter and pull it down and munch on it. North American earthworms are a bit more laissez-faire. You know, yeah, we'll just wait for it to rot and then I'll eat it. So they get completely outcompeted. Can you imagine now trying to sort of remove all European earthworms from North America and repatriate them back to Europe? Just wouldn't happen. And I think this is the level of change. So when aliens come from space in 100,000 years and they look at the record, they're going to see separate continents with really distinct biotas. And then from the 1600s onwards, oh my word, it's all started to merge into one mess. Um, And that's where Simon and I came in. 
because we also pointed out that there was a nice markup. So what happens when, unfortunately, those 56 million people die is, of course, they were farmers. So their land was abandoned. So you have rainforest, you have savanna, you have seasonal forest all growing back. You can actually see a dip in the global CO2 records in the ice cores because all of that regrowth. And we suggested that 1610, which is the peak or the trough of that sort of CO2, would be the perfect starting point because it's the start of capitalism. It's the start of globalization of slavery. And it's also the globalization of mixing and homogenizing biota. But of course, the Anthropocene Working Group has dismissed all of those because they've already got the answer, which is, of course, it is post-Second World War. It is the Great Acceleration, and it's all due to consumerism and the Great American Empire. And therefore, what they're doing now, having made that decision, is they're looking for the geological evidence of when it started. And so I think in autumn 2022, they will be announcing that it is definitely in the 1960s somewhere, and it will be some radiogenic or some sediment layer that they will define. I personally find that problematic because I think the processes that have led to our domination and our abuse of the planet are much longer than just post-Second World War. I think all of those processes are part of humanity for a long time. And also, as I turn around to my father, I don't see why my father was born in a geological period of time to me. Okay, I, I don't perceive that, that there's that much difference in the world. But at the end of the day, as long as we have a definition, at least we can argue over it. As we look into the future, whether we are formally in the Anthropocene or it's merely an informal sense that things have changed, how does this inform our possible futures? On what course might humanity go as we move forward? Well, I think the most important thing is that we acknowledge how much impact we have on the planet. Because if we do that, then we cannot claim ignorance to say, well, we didn't know this. This was just an accident. And by doing that, we can then say, what sort of future do we want? Do we want a future where we become the custodians of our planet? Because, of course, remember, we are now controlling both the global environment and probably the evolutionary destiny of most organisms on Earth, which, interestingly enough, is the only place that we know that life exists in the universe. So this is a huge responsibility. So we need to take on that responsibility and work out, well, how do we actually ensure that we look after our little blue planet? How do we ensure that we think about the 10 billion people that will be on the planet by the year 2050? And how do we make sure that we share out the resources and share out everything as fairly as possible to make sure that we, a global species, actually prosper and can actually maintain our environment? And I think that's the key. We have one major issue, which is somehow, even though we are individuals, we think about ourselves, our family, our tribe, maybe our country, because that's where we've driven our patriotism. What we have to start thinking about is as us as a global species. And I think that's going to be a real challenge for humanity because we are so steeped in our own self. How do we think as a collective, as 7.9 billion now, 10 billion by 2050, how do we think, okay, what is good for all of us? How do we actually maintain that? 
we're not doing very well at the moment. I mean, the most scary stat that I have in my arsenal is that there are currently 26 of the richest billionaires, just 26, who have the same wealth as the bottom poorest 3.9 billion people. That's not sharing. (laughs) That's not how you can imagine the world going forward by basically lifting everybody out of poverty and actually thinking of us as a global species. That is 26 people looking after 26 people. You know, it doesn't quite work. So I think there are some incredible changes that have to happen if and when we acknowledge we're in the Anthropocene, whatever the Anthropocene means. So we were talking about uh, the uh, politics, what I call the external politics of the Anthropocene. What is it emphasized? What does it have? So I think the most important thing about moving forward is if we have a definition of the Anthropocene, it then allows people to say, look, this is what scientists say. We're in the Anthropocene. We have a huge impact. It then allows people to say, well, if we have this impact, why don't we stop it? Why don't we actually counter that? And I think there is this growing movement, particularly in young people who are very aware of how much impact humans have the smallest of the planet, how vulnerable we are. I think that COVID and the pandemic has really hammered home to people that nature is very close to us. We are part of nature and every so often nature can throw things at us that we just don't know how to cope with straight away. And I think that's been a real wake-up call. And for me, what was interesting is I thought the pandemic would kill any discussion about climate change because we just have to focus on this crisis. Because that's what happened during the financial crash. So in 2008, suddenly all discussion of climate change really was muted. 2009, we had Copenhagen, which was a complete washout because of the worries about the global finances. I thought the pandemic would go the same way. Interesting enough, actually, voices got more concerned about climate change. We got more protests, we got more worry and more anxiety, and hopefully at some point more action. So I think that we're at this tipping point whereby we are realizing how big an impact we're having. And actually, lots of young activists are demanding change, not just about climate change, but also preserving biodiversity, preserving the balance and the wall between us and nature so we avoid the jumping of zoonotic diseases. And I think that's something that we as scientists need to support and provide evidence for to allow people to move forward with changes that will be positive for the planet. And I think if we look at the science reports like the IPCC coming out now, it's all about solutions. We're we're moving on from that doom, doom. We're now going, right, how do we do it? We're in the Anthropocene. How do we actually make it a good Anthropocene as opposed to a bad Anthropocene? So let's back up a bit. It seems that the definition of the Anthropocene, whether it's declared and where it begins, has with it a politics, both internal to these processes of decision-making bodies. You've mentioned the Anthropocene Working Group, and I'm sure there's factions and camps within it who are pushing this way and that. It's something you hinted at a moment ago, and that's the external politics of this. What gets emphasized by a spike of the beginning of the Anthropocene in the 20th century versus one, as you propose, in the 17th century, or one possibly, let's say, earlier with the uh, Neolithic Revolution and the rise of agriculture? So I think it is really important that 
defining the Anthropocene or not defining the Anthropocene is highly political. And I think this has been missed by the Anthropocene Working Group and the Holocene Working Group, because I don't think until very recently they understood how important this debate is. I mean, I and many others have argued that different fields of studies, so social science, archaeology, anthropology, all required to actually think about humanity in a much wider area. So you've devoted considerable effort alongside your science to communicating this to the public and climate change has been one of your focuses. So how has the public debate over climate change evolved in the time that you've been involved in it? So the climate change debate, I would say, has changed out of all recognition. So when I first wrote the Oxford University Press's very short introduction, first it was called Global Warming in 2004. And there, literally, we were still trying to convince people that climate change was real. And I I remember somebody telling me that there was a well-thumbed copy on the BBC news desk because basically they were still trying to get this balance right. And what does Mark say? We've moved away from that. And it's really clear that most media outlets, most newspapers, even the Australian elections all get that climate change is a major issue and has to be dealt with. And so therefore, dealing with, I would say, deniers has evolved. So originally it was, well, the science isn't quite sorted, you know, there's some doubt, there's some worry, you know, and just basically delay, delay, delay. Then there was sort of like, oh, well, you can't trust these scientists. Look at them, they're being funded to find this out. And then we've moved into now a really interesting period of time, which is one that says, well, actually, it's going to cost us too much to actually save the planet. Going net zero is going to be too expensive. Or actually, if we're going to look after these poor people in the developing world, perhaps they really do need fossil fuels because that's the only way to lift them out of poverty. Forgetting, of course, that poverty is a political decision and actually it's about shifts of money, nothing to do whether they get fossil fuels or not. And so I think that it's become a different approach, which is, again, another delaying tactic. Instead of saying the science is wrong, they go, well, yeah, but actually, can we afford to do this? Can we actually do this? And I always counter this, which is I live in the UK. And we make something like two and a half trillion dollars in GDP every single year. So why are there poor people? Why have we got food banks? Why do we have children growing up not actually eating enough? Because we've made a political decision about how to share the wealth in the country. And that has changed since the 1970s. And more of the wealth has moved up into the top 1%. And so there's this juxtaposition between dealing with things like the environment and climate change And then having this nasty political, well, you know, it's just going to make poor people poor. It's like, no, you've made people poor. You can stop that and save the planet at the same time. And actually, you probably save money doing it. And so, again, it's really unfortunate that we have this. Again, fossil fuel lobby is so powerful in particular democracies, which is unfortunate because I sometimes want to take libertarians, market gurus, and true capitalists and go, okay, fine, let's go for it. Let's try yours things. I'm happy to go with your experiment, but you have to do it properly. What do you mean? Take away every single fossil fuel subsidy in the world. Take it away. That's half a trillion dollars every single year. And just let the markets play out. And I'm pretty sure I know what I'm going to be building in my country to actually fuel the people. It'll be solar panels. It'll be wind. And it'll be wave because it's a damn sight cheaper. 
And again, I think these are the political discussions that we're not having and we're not being allowed to have and we're not having openly and honestly about if you want true economics, go for it, but don't subsidize. I guess um, it, it does seem a little that we've I mean, have we reached normal politics on climate change? I mean, in a sense, initially, you're right, there was denying that there was even a problem, whereas now it seems that it's more like conventional things, which is, you know, do we have the money? How do we allocate it? How much should we tax people? Is this sort of the final state in a sense of this is politics as normal, but climate change is just another policy to discuss? I think there are lots of really positive things that we can take away from both international and national politics. The idea that 80% of all the emissions in the world are under some sort of net zero target would be unheard of five years ago. Brilliant. That's fantastic. The problem is that none of us actually think that the national policies are going to go in quick enough and actually be supported to get us there quick enough. And I think this is the thing, which is we probably will get there eventually. It's how much damage do we leave in the wake? And the problem is that this is just dealing with climate change. This is just the net zero. It doesn't deal with things like deforestation, uh, habitat destruction, pollution, and things like that, which I think also needs to be encompassed. And we have this really weird situation. So as I said, we are going to peak at about 10 billion people by 2050, and then the population will stabilize. It may even go down a little bit. Now, this is because half the world's population, when they're educated up to secondary school level or above, women take control of fertility and it stabilizes. Brilliant. So we're the only species to control our own population because half of the population has actually taken responsibility and control of that. Perfect. Tick. But what's interesting is that that population of 10 billion will be in urban areas, or most of it will be. So this, we have this really weird situation where our population is going up, but the world is becoming a wilder place. So places where there were people are being depopulated because they're moving to cities. They don't want to be out in the middle of nowhere, etc. We're becoming a very dense urban species. So that gives us so many opportunities, which says, well, hang on, if there's pe no people there, why not just reforest it? Why not actually rewild it? Why not bring back nature? And the scale of our impacts are such that if we wanted to do that, we could. So we're at this position of how do we mobilize that power? And actually, instead of doing it in little random ways, how do we actually do it and organize it in a planetary basis? And I think that's something many of us are struggling with. But again, it's all to play for. One and a half degrees is still technically possible. Chances of actually just keeping it to one and a half? Yeah. So, of course, then we're playing for 1.6, 1.7, 1.8. And I love it when Greta Thornburg is interviewed because they say, so what happens if we miss 1.5? And she goes, then we'll aim for 1.6. And we miss 1.6, then we'll aim for 1.7. She said, we will never give up because every point of a degree that you save will make a difference. And I think that's a fantastic way of looking at it. So to come back to the communication challenges around climate, 
I'm perceiving that we're now having an issue on the other side of the spectrum. So classic climate denial seems to be going into decline, but there's a real growth in, I'm not sure you want to characterize it as alarmism, but there's a growing sense of doom amongst the youth. I've just got some statistics from a survey of youth across 10 countries, and it's focusing on the UK. I just wanted to check how you feel about these statistics. So 47% of young people in the UK believe that the things they value most will be destroyed. 51% believe humanity is doomed. 38% are hesitant to have children, and 28% say that worrying about climate change affects their day-to-day lives. What would you say to these young people about their future? Well, I think that's an interesting set of stats, and that's from the Lancet paper that came out, I think. Well, what's really scary is the UK is actually quite a good set of stats. If you go to Indonesia, it's basically 96% of young people are worried about climate change. So again, It's even worse when you go to other countries who are at the forefront of climate change impacts. I think the biggest problem that the young people have, and when you interact with them, is they have completely lost trust in mature people, adults, and particularly politicians. And I think that has been a huge shift over the last 20, 30 years. My parents, okay, there was changes in politics, but they knew that those politicians would make sure that they had a pension, they would be looked after, the state would look after them. That has been eroded and eroded and eroded. And I think what we need is we need a different type of politics. We need to actually go back to the politicians where they are there to basically look after the people. They are there to look after the majority to make sure that the best outcomes, instead of trying to get themselves constantly re-elected by a small population, somehow we need to actually, and this is where Al Gore says, we need to fix democracy before we can fix the climate, which is really scary because most of us perceive democracy as the worst, best option, (laughs) if that makes sense. So how do we actually fix that to stop lobbyists, stop interest groups? stop politicians being unduly influenced and actually get them to do their job. And I'm not sure. I mean, lots and lots of different ideas out there. But that, I think, is the challenge of the 21st century, which is to make our leaders think beyond the short term. And there are some incredible cases of inspired leaders around the world who have done that. But we sort of need them everywhere. We just need that new generation. And I'd love to think that the new generation coming through will think differently. But again, humans are really odd creatures. They really are sometimes quite (laughs) self-absorbed, quite selfish. And I think it's Mark Twain that said the last person in the country who wants to be president should be president. And I think that's probably true. I think anybody who wants to be a politician really shouldn't be a politician. And again, it's somehow, how do we reinvent democracy? How do we actually reinvigorate it? How do we actually get the leaders we deserve? And I don't know how to answer that, unfortunately. I'm just a mere scientist. Just to come back to that, the view that humanity is doomed. I remember, I guess, when I started my PhD, when people were thinking about climate communications, 2009 odd, there was a strong idea that doom-laden messaging about climate change wouldn't work. People would react against it, they'd dismiss it, you'd be proven wrong, and it wouldn't happen. But it seems that's not been the case. The messaging on climate change has become, or at least you can see in social media, the growth and in the supply and demand for these doom-laden messages for climate. And it's working. It's having a big impact on young people and they're becoming very radicalized. Yeah. Is that worth it? Is it okay that 50% of UK youth think that humanity is doomed and a quarter of them are worried about having children? 
is that proportionate or is it okay so long as they have a political impact? No, I, I don't think that the growth of climate anxiety is good. Okay, I think it's uh, negative, it impacts on people's mental health, and I think it really stops us being able to react. And I think this is where many of us worry that doomism goes too far, and that there's a little bit of acceleration there. Lobbyists are using this because you go, there's that wonderful thing, which is if you're doomed, then why bother? If we're all doomed, why switch away from fossil fuels? Why not just actually keep them, you know, keep the lights on, etc.? Why change? And this is why I would say my communication and people's like Catherine Hayhoe's, Michael Mann's and others is very positive, which is, yes, this is a huge impact. Yes, this is a huge challenge. But look. We have all the technologies, we have all the businesses, we have all the entrepreneurs, we have all the science. What we lack is actually the policies and the politicians to enable us to actually drive ourselves into that future. And I think that's where we need to empower. And that's what fear does. Fear takes away that power. I think what's interesting is this anxiety is very different to, say, the anxiety that many people had in the 80s, which was nuclear war and annihilation, because that was something you could be incredibly frightened about, you could be anxious about, but you had no agency. It was some general and some president in a bunker somewhere that was going to basically destroy the planet. So you could worry about it, but there's nothing you could do about it. Why I think climate change and sustainability and environmental degradation is so problematic as an anxiety is because we all have agency. We can reduce our footprint. We can actually do something positive. We can talk about it. We can get other people to change. But we also know that our little contribution, though important, is nowhere near what needs to be done. We can't fix it on our own. We actually need governments to change. You know, we need governments to actually go, right, all the energy that you're using is renewable from now on. Okay. Oh, thank goodness. All your air flights, all the actual kerosene is artificial. So it's carbon neutral. So you can go on your holiday guilt free. You know, you don't have to spend all your time feeling guilty about lying on a beach thinking about the return flight. So again, I think it is because we have some agency, we have some impact, and we can do something about it, but we can't necessarily change the world. But what has been really powerful, so my message, I have a list of things that individuals can do, but the first thing is always talk about it. And it's really weird because people don't really want to talk about climate change and the state of the planet. But when they do, the person they're talking to goes, oh my God. I'm really anxious about that as well. I've seen this in companies. So I've worked with billion-dollar companies, and I've worked with startup companies advising them. And it always starts with a conversation between two people, usually over the coffee or over the water cooler. And they'll go, oh, you know, we could do this differently. And suddenly, because you're in a positive atmosphere, because you're actually making a difference, that actually doesn't get rid of the anxiety, but it balances it out. It's like, yes, we're anxious, but we're doing something about it. And I think that is what we need. We need more positive solutions. We need more people to be able to be engaged and actually help. And I've seen the billion-dollar company I've seen in five years go from, sorry, what's the environment? To winning triple A rating at the Carbon Disclosure Project because they're going carbon neutral by 2028. Big organizations can change really quickly when they want to. When they have the support of their employees, 
their clients and their customers. Same with governments. I mean, the ridiculous thing in this country is what people are thinking is, well, hang on, if the government had actually put in renewable energy properly 10 years ago, my energy bill would not be twice as much as it was last month because I'm now basically taking the brunt because of geopolitics, which I have no control over. Basically, the oil companies and the gas companies hiking their prices up because supposedly Russian gas is difficult to get hold of, even though if you look at the oil companies and the gas companies, they've basically quadrupled their profits. Hmm. So they're not passing on their profits to us. It's madness. If you think about it, if we'd all gone renewable, we'd all be fine. We'd be going, oh, okay, Russian gas is expensive. Not my problem. Again, I think people are also looking to government and going, when are you actually going to step up and do something sensible? And the ridiculous thing is whenever we demand something like that, we get distracted by ridiculously stupid stories about, oh, they had a party during COVID. It's like, I don't care. Could you just actually put some decent policies in place? And the thing is, I'll be really honest. I don't care if they're right-wing policies. I don't care if they're middle of the road. And I don't care if they're left-wing policies. We all know that there's good policies on all spectrums, political spectrums, that can deal with carbon emissions, can deal with adaptation, and can deal with looking after people in the aftermath of climate impacts. You've painted a picture of the current conditions that's a bit of a glass is half full and a glass is half empty. We know what some of the solutions are. Perhaps we know what all of them could be or should be. We have some technologies. We know what the policies should be, but there is a lack of political action. In this context, as you look toward the future, what is it that gives you the most optimism? So my optimism comes from engaging with young people. The reason being is the energy, the power, the agency, and their optimism. So I've been lucky enough to go on the youth strikes and just see the young people there. And what's really interesting is that it wasn't like the protests of my youth, whereby they were angry, they were violent, they were basically, if you hadn't thrown a brick at a bank within the first five minutes, you obviously were softy. These were very different. And the same in Glasgow, they are basically young people going, you need to change the world now because you've marked it up and trust us. If you don't, we will fix it. And it's a really interesting, different dialogue. So that gives me a lot of hope. Also, I think what people don't perceive is they think in the world differently. So this is a generation that has been born with Google. They have no idea what a world without Google is like. They are a generation that has been born with a mobile phone. They understand that they can communicate with any human being on the planet because most people have mobile phones. So therefore, it's a very small planet. They've seen the impact of COVID. They've seen what a pandemic can do. And they've also have access to influences that they trust that tell them the facts about climate change. And I think that's really interesting because the political lobbyists, the fossil fuel lobby, have no access to those youth influences. It's really interesting that sort of however they try, basically that new generation thinks in a different way, has different ways of accumulating information, which they can't access. And so that's a really powerful way of actually going forward. So whenever I actually am feeling incredibly depressed, 
I feel sort of like huge climate anxiety. I literally think back to the Friday strike in the middle of COP26 in Glasgow when the youth filled Glasgow on the Friday and basically were demanding change. And what was then even more surprising is then I thought that was it. I thought it was amazing until the Saturday. The Saturday was the general strike and the general actual march. And literally everybody came out. I just couldn't believe it. So literally I stood at a street corner and for hours people literally passed by me. You had an 80-year-old who basically had a walking stick who I wasn't sure was going to make it to the end of the march. You had parents with their toddlers going on this march. You had union people. You had the conservative leader, labor leader, all on this march to basically say to world leaders, you need to deal with this issue. And I think for me, the biggest frustration, the biggest frustration for young people is all the things that people are suggesting to deal with climate change and environmental degradation actually make people safer. They make people wealthier. They make them healthier and might even make them a bit happier. And there's this incredulous sort of like look that people have going, why wouldn't you do this? We don't understand. Why are you not doing these things that are actually going to do all of that for people around the world? This has been Professor Mark Maslin of the University College London. Mark, thanks for joining us on Challenging Climate. Absolute pleasure to be here, guys. Well, thanks for listening. Please rate or review us on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere, and consider supporting us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash challengingclimate.